0: It is a great pleasure to welcome you to this, the fourth, and sadly, um, the last of this, what's been an excellent series of Green Templeton College lectures. Those of you, and there are some here, who've been at all four will remember that we began with an historical overview of the history of pharmaceutical industry in the UK. The second week tracked through more narrowly the history of regulation of the industry. The third lecture last week was a view from within GlaxoSmithKline looking at the present, and so quite appropriately, our final lecture looks into the future and asks, is there a healthy future for big pharma? That lecture will be delivered by somebody who is extraordinarily well-qualified to um, speak to the topic tonight. Dr. John Patterson, OBE, qualified as a medic in 1971 in Manchester and then in 1975 joined ICI Pharmaceuticals with whom he spent the next 18 years in a range of research and development positions. He took various leadership roles in clinical research in this country, in Germany, and the United States before being appointed medical director. He moved to Zeneca, holding senior positions there, and in 1994, with the formation through merger of AstraZeneca, became executive vice president of product strategy and licensing. And then in December 2004, John Patterson was appointed to the main board of AstraZeneca as executive director, responsible for the development of all AstraZeneca's new medicines. In March this year, John retired from AstraZeneca. And his when I saw him this evening, I didn't recognize him from the picture on the website because he is wearing a post-retirement beard. <laughs> Currently, he is a non-executive director of Cobham, PLC, He is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and has also been elected a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences. He's a former president, we've had one in this series already, he's a former president of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry and a former member of the Supervisory Board of the UK Medicines Control Agency. Dr. Patterson, we look forward to your lecture with enormous anticipation. And immediately after the lecture, there will be a response from, and, and before, I should say, before we open the floor to a Q&A session, there will be a response from Sophia Tikell. Sophia is currently the director of Pharma Futures, the series of publications around um, ethical and commercial aspects, and she's chairperson of Sustainability, the award-winning independent think tank and strategy consultancy, which for the last 20 years has worked with business to try to shape a world that future generations will wish to inherit. Sophia Tickel came to her current responsibilities and roles via an intriguing route. An historian turned journalist and subsequently author, a worker in international development, most recently as Oxfam's senior policy advisor on the private sector. She currently serves on a very wide range of consultancy and advisory committees. And I'd like in advance to thank her for that. But now if I can ask the lecturer for tonight, Dr. John Patterson, to address us.
1: So, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you, Principal, for that very kind introduction. Let me just begin by saying that, uh, as he noted, I retired recently from AstraZeneca after more than 30 years in the company. And probably this evening, from time to time, I'll talk about uh, my former company as us rather than they. Uh, but I just want to make it quite clear that the views that I'm expressing this evening are my views and not their views. Let me start the lecture by saying that when you buy a house, an estate agent will tell you that only three things matter, and you all know what they are position, position, and position. In the research based pharmaceutical industry, I believe that only three things matter for its future or its future healthy survival. They're also peas, and they're products, patents, and pricing. And above all else, it's new products. Tonight, I'd like to describe to you the industry's business model, to explain to you why it's under such a threat as I see it, and to discuss what I think needs to be done to improve the health of the patient. Now, the problem statement is really quite simple, because looking forwards, companies simply can't invent enough new products, get them cost-effectively through development, bring them to the market and sell them for an economic price for long enough to create acceptable shareholder return. Now, for most of the major pharmaceutical companies, it isn't an issue for today. It's a three- to ten-year problem that the whole industry faces as the current products come off patent and they simply can't replace them with enough new ones. Now, let me try and put that problem statement into perspective. And uh, to try and understand where where I'm coming from and how the industry has changed, I'm gonna have to go backwards a little bit uh, over the environment for the last few years. So please indulge me while I use my experience in the industry to try and put things in context. When I joined what was ICI Pharmaceuticals Division some 30 years ago, I joined with the intention of learning some therapeutics and going back Uh, into hospital as a hospital doctor. And at that time, that business was a small division of a large chemical giant. And the business had been spawned during World War II with the intention of trying to make anti-malarials and antibiotics and had evolved over the years into a beta-blocker-dominated company. And it is worth just noting for those of you that are business students that that start-up pharmaceutical business took more than 20 years before it made its first profit, something that today's venture capitalists, I suspect, just couldn't contemplate. When I joined that company, I was asked to look after a product in development called ICI 46474. And I was lucky, because I spent the next five years running the clinical development of what became Tamoxifen. And as a result, I never went back to hospital medicine, and I have no regrets. I suspect that over that period of time, I have worked in what was the golden age of the pharmaceutical industry. It's worth comparing that development of tamoxifen, the first anti-estrogen developed for breast cancer, with something that I've had the pleasure of trying to develop over the last ten years, which is actually a first-in-class cancer drug as well, called Gifitinib or which is, uh, for those of you that uh, are interested, an EGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, for non-small cell lung cancer. But really, that doesn't matter. What I want to do is just compare and contrast the way we developed those two medicines uh, over that period, uh, some 30 years between the two. When we developed tamoxifen, we got a license for it in the UK based on evidence from about 300 patients. And that data gave us a very broad label for the use in advanced breast cancer. The development of that medicine, which included separation of the isomers, solving multiple toxicological issues, took about eight or nine years, and it probably cost less than a million dollars. At that time, we had response rates in advanced cancer, but we had no idea whether we improved survival. And it was some eight or nine years post-launch when the first adjuvant survival studies actually showed that we could benefit survival for patients with this product. And the whole trial program to do that cost less than a million dollars. Also, at the time of launch, we had no pharmacokinetic and metabolism data. We'd actually relied on volunteers to swallow radio-labeled product and simply measured what came out in the urine and the faeces. And it was only some years post-launch, when mass spectrometry and other techniques became more available and sensitive, that we were able to really find out what the half-life in the blood was of this medicine. It actually showed that the medicine that we were giving twice a day, seemingly very successfully and very safely, had a plasma half-life of seven days. And its major active metabolite had a half-life of 14 days. So at least once a day would be more than adequate. So there are certain things we learned many years after developing the medicine, and all of that development was done essentially on clinical grounds. And nevertheless, tamoxifen and many other medicines developed in that era and subsequently proved to be very beneficial to patients. And they created a financial return over many years to the company that invented them, aided by relatively slow generic penetration in most markets. By comparison, Gifidinib, or Iressa, was developed over a 10-year period in the late 90s and this decade. Its first approval was on more than 1,500 patients studied in great depth. We knew everything about the kinetics and metabolism by the time it came to market. We already had a biomarker, although it wasn't validated at the time of launch, so we could already undertake personalized medicine. And we got a very narrow license in second-line non-small cell lung cancer just for those trials that we'd undertaken. To do that, we'd spent hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet it still didn't get us a U.S. license with the FDA because we didn't have a survival study at launch which is now essential for a cancer drug in the United States. And when we did do it in an unselected population, we didn't get the right answer. Iressa, the name of the new medicine is probably, by today's standards, a low-cost development compared with the primary care medicine. For example, we recently tried to develop a novel anticoagulant. It failed in development in Phase 3 after 33,000 patients had been exposed. And an antiplatelet drug that we were developing, or are developing at the moment, they, I should say, has just completed an 18,000-patient head-to-head comparison with Clopidogrel, which is the current market leader, in phase three, to show an outcome study. It cost more than $300 million for that study alone, let alone the rest of the development. So we've changed completely the cost and the timescale of doing clinical development. And in today's post-Vioxx world, regulators are more and more demanding, and more and more pre-approval safety is expected... Payers are now asking us, and you've had Michael Rawlins already in the audience, I think, previously, to have definitive data at launch on both cost effectiveness and comparative efficacy. So, pretty well every phase three study now has active comparator rather than placebo, and that usually means adding another naught to the numbers of patients required for the program. As a result, the programs for development of new medicines are getting bigger and bigger and more expensive, and longer. Today it takes the industry, on average, 11 and a half years to develop a new medicine. And including the cost of failures, it's believed that the average medicine now costs about $4.5 billion to get to the marketplace. It's simply too long and too costly to develop the new medicines. And the real killer for the industry is that while only 1 in 20,000 of the medicines that we synthesize actually makes it to the marketplace, 8% of those get into man, and over half of those fail in the late phase of development, and that's when the big costs are incurred. Today, when we talk about R&D, more than 70% of R&D costs are actually during development, and the majority of those are in the late phase clinical development. So that's a big issue in terms of the cost of doing development and the timescale. But even when a medicine reaches the marketplace, today it has a maximum of 10 years to recoup its costs. Unlike tamoxifen, where the penetration of generics led to a gentle sales decline over many years, today we lose over half our business in the first month after the patent expires in major markets. And with health technology, uh, bodies like NICE uh, springing up all over the world, not only is the end of the product life cycle being shortened by the generic penetration, but the speed of uptake of the new medicines has also slowed. And that's certainly much slower than a few years ago. And the challenge from the HTAs is show us it's cost-effective and we'll pay for it. The challenge from the industry, or for the industry, is you can't do that in a controlled clinical trial situation where you actually study relatively small numbers of people in great depth. To show the real place of a medicine you have to study large numbers of people in the real environment for a long period of time. So a nice evaluation at launch is usually a meaningless exercise but the problem is if you wait for three or four years post-launch over that period of time many governments won't pay for the medicine because it hasn't actually shown its cost-effectiveness. So you're in a catch-22 situation. And the result is that the area under the sales curve for each new product is diminished. And as governments continue to control prices because they're actually spending money on healthcare and access in a way that we've never had before, that continues to diminish. And then just to add one more issue... To to the, to the problem issue, the whole patent scene has become a minefield, with generic companies queuing up to challenge every patented product, and many being brought down. When I last looked, 18 out of the world's top 20 medicines were in court somewhere in the United States with a patent challenge. The rewards for success for the generic companies are so great that their business model relies entirely on employing lawyers, not researchers. And they only have to win once to get a foothold into the market. Just to tell you how serious an issue this is, last year AstraZeneca spent $400 million on lawyers' fees in the United States, most of which was spent on defending our patents. Frankly, money that would have been better spent on R&D. So what's the problem with patents? Well, patents are granted by governments in recognition of the work that has gone into an invention. Yet in pharmaceuticals, it's the government who ends up paying the health care bill and the cost of the medicine. So there's a built-in schizophrenia with the desire to control health care costs, sometimes overcoming the desire for newer, better medicines. Often governments lose sight of the fact that the medicines bill is only 10 or 15 percent of the total healthcare care bill, or that new medicines have transformed medical care and save money in many areas. For example, heart failure, asthma, anaesthesia, peptic ulcer disease, and many others. And certainly when I was uh, a young hospital doctor, the surgical wards were full of patients who had peptic ulcers having vagotamine pyloroplasties. Those of you practising medicine will know that's almost extinct. So the medicines can change the practice of medicine, but unfortunately, usually the person paying the pharmacy doesn't see the benefit to the Department of Surgery, they only see the cost to their own department. But within the patenting area, a real example of that dichotomy and the dilemma is the European Patent Office, where the patents that they have granted are often overturned by another branch of the same institution, by their own appointed appeal lawyers, from whom there's no right of appeal. The patent system, or at least as it's applied to medicines, has fallen into an enormous political minefield, ranging from the World Trade Organization, where the less developed countries want access to new medicines at affordable prices, not unreasonably, and they see patents as a real obstacle, through to countries like China, who have 4,000 generic companies, but are actually now trying to transform themselves into a research base from where they can actually start to export medicines. Through to someone like India, who've who've actually spawned an enormous generics industry based on superb chemistry, but simply pay lip service to intellectual property. So across the world, we have huge differences. And in the major Western countries, they love the high-tech research-based industry. They love the exports. They like the jobs we create, but they don't want to pay an economic price for the medicines. So the bottom line is that patenting of medicines has become over-complex and has lost some credibility, and in places like the WHO and the WTO, has become a giant political football. Now, at this point in my talk, I think I should apologise if this sounds like a whinge on behalf of my former employers. I simply wanted you to understand why, for instance, in the marketplace, the share price or the price earnings uh, for the average pharma company has fallen from an average of 25 in the mid-90s to around 10 today. The financial community sees the challenges that the industry faces and prices accordingly. Today, many pharmaceutical companies are seen as income rather than growth stocks, which might explain why they haven't weathered the current recession as well as in previous times. When stock prices assumed a growth in perpetuity of 3 to 6%, and 80% of the value of a pharma company 10 years ago lay in the promise of its R&D. That has been wiped out. Today, many pharma businesses are only valued at their discounted cash flow, virtually assuming no new products to the marketplace. So if the stock market behaves a bit like some of the market people I know, with only an on-off switch and no rheostat, it does actually explain why... Uh, The outside world has seen uh, that the industry has some significant problems to face and has got to do something about it. So if the problem is about R&D being unproductive, taking too long for medicines it finds, and costing too much, what's industry going to do about it? Or what is it doing about it? Well, in theory, the easiest element to fix is the time it takes to undertake a development programme. One can measure all the elements and apply production techniques like Lean or Six Sigma to the process and drive out the delays. AstraZeneca are moving from an average development time of 12.5 years to eight years over a four-year period. And that's certainly an enormous step forward. But, generally speaking, time saved comes at a cost. Because what you have to do is plan for success... And inevitably that leads to spend more at risk before you actually know whether the last phase of the drug's development actually worked. And of course there's a dilemma too, because as industry gets faster, the regulatory demands are putting more and more tendencies in the opposite direction. And when I say going at risk in terms of our developments, I don't mean cutting corners and increasing patient risk. I mean that design of the studies and spending money, often building a factory before you have the information to tell you that you actually have a medicine to put in it. I think the other thing that many people forget, especially my chief executives from time to time, is that medicine's development is actually not a timeline. It's a series of experiments that are dependent upon each other, the outcome of which you don't know at the time you start them. Pretty well every major pharmaceutical company has announced a program of cuts or control in its R&D costs. That inevitably means headcount reductions because we're a very uh, people-rich organisation, offshoring of some activities and looking to undertake clinical trials in less expensive places. In 1978, I ran the first adjuvant hormonal breast cancer study, the NATO study, for tamoxifen. We had 1,200 patients from across the United Kingdom. We paid for all the extra tests provided the medication, monitored the study with an independent steering committee, and ran the trial office. The whole study cost less than half a million pounds. I already told you what it's costing us today to run of our phase three studies, and today that study would probably cost over 100 million pounds because the industry is expected to pay all the patient costs, not just the extra ones, to provide institutions with staff to run the trials, to provide honoraria for the medical staff, and on top of everything else, to pay an institution an overhead of up to 100% of on-cost. Universities, health authorities, and doctors see clinical trials today as a profit centre and not as a part of their ongoing commitment to improving health care. And in this instance, I don't believe Oxford is any different to the rest of the world. So the industry responds by moving studies and costs overseas. And that's helped to some degree, but it's a short-term fix, and it throws up other issues of ethnicity, dietary, and environmental differences. In AstraZeneca, we set ourselves the challenge of keeping R&D costs essentially flat for five years, while speeding up and increasing the output to two or three molecules per annum. How could we do that? The answer was, cost and time control was not enough. The model required an increased productivity, because the biggest cost lies with the 92 out of 100 molecules that fail in development. Reduce that even by a couple of percent, and the economics change dramatically. Take all the failures early in development, and there's another significant gain. And to do that, we now do more toxicology and research, We develop surrogate markers to enable phase one decision-making and screen for all the things that over the years experience has led us to believe will trip up the process later on. It does add cost, but it'll be well worth it if it succeeds. In addition, companies are moving into biologicals, biologicals in general and monoclonals in particular. Why? Well, that gives access to new disease targets, but also because the success rate with biologics, has been as high, in inverted commas, as 13%, 50% better than small molecules. If that continues, you can change your output over a period of time quite significantly. But there is a big question mark as to whether the next generation of biologicals will do as well or command as high a price as the current ones. And generic biologics or biosimilars are certainly on the way. So that brings me to the issue of price and the marketplace. Whilst industry's problems are always going to be about products from R&D, even if R&D productivity turns around, the current sales and marketing model, in my view, is not durable. It's too costly to industry, and it's constantly being challenged by the payers. The problem is that, to date, no one's found a better selling model than the personalised selling driven by the sales rep. It is cost effective today. Doctors tend to believe that they're immune from sales techniques and that good medicines sell themselves. In my experience, neither is true. And a very good example of that was in 1994, when the Clinton healthcare reforms were coming in in the United States, and a number of companies chose to halve their sales forces ahead of those reforms. They lost huge amounts of market share, and most of the CEOs lost their jobs. If done well, and there is an if, the sales model provides a valuable education and support model for healthcare professionals looking for new ways to treat their patients. Sadly, as I'm sure you know, it isn't always done well. However, in an industry where growth is slowing, and new product introductions are less frequent, especially in primary care keeping a U.S. sales force of several thousand sales reps on the road, to have an average of seven or eight brief interactions every day will not be sustainable. And along with general and administrative costs, selling and marketing costs will be cut, and a slimmer, more efficient industry will have to emerge. Many new e-based techniques are being tested around the industry, and I'm sure that methods will, new methods will emerge just as I'm sure that the American style direct to consumer advertising will never spread across the globe and may well disappear altogether. So R and D costs flat, sales and marketing costs declining, general and administrative costs under control and reduced. Those are the internal solutions to improve cost control, to keep up margins, and push R and D to become much more effective and efficient. Will it be enough? And perhaps more of a challenge, when will the CEO, the board and the shareholders know that it's working? Instant gratification in this industry takes years, and it's worth noting that an R&D cycle time of eight years is twice the average tenure of a FTSE CEO. Of course, we can all look for the green shoots of recovery, such as project numbers and progression through the development phases. But not everyone can wait. And a number of cash-rich companies are beginning to take things into their own hands through mergers and acquisitions. Pfizer and Merck are the current leading players with their acquisitions of Wyeth and Shearing Plough, respectively. This maturing of the industry in consolidation is all very well. But there's a problem. Whilst cost-cutting and efficiencies, so-called synergies, can gain a good two to three years of benefit in terms of the profitability of the company, it leaves them with even more mouths to feed, more sales, and a bigger need still for products going forward. And if you look backwards, the last round of major acquisitions destroyed enormous amounts of shareholder value at GSK and Pfizer. And I, for one, struggle to know why this round won't do the same. So if that's not the answer, maybe an alternative is the acquisition of small and mid-sized companies. That's already been happening. And most mid-cap European pharmaceutical companies have disappeared in the last few years, gobbled up by their bigger rivals. So not only are there few opportunities left, but unless the companies that are left have well-hidden gems in their pipelines, it's hard to see that they either bring you critical mass or product salvation. So that leaves acquisition of startup up or biotech companies. And whilst that brings great joy to their founders and the venture capitalists, it will never solve the short-term needs of big pharma because almost all of those companies come for sale as soon as they get a product into man. And those products still may- need many years and millions before they can begin to create a return for the industry. So by now you may be asking yourselves, well, is there going to be a next generation of medicines? Is this the end? And where will they come from? And the answer is, yes, of course, there has to be. Not only is there still real unmet medical need, but the underlying science continues to move forward and offer new opportunities. It is fair to say that it's become more difficult especially with organic chemistry derived in small molecules. But we might well be moving into an era where prevention and cure, rather than symptom control, are available to us. But we shouldn't forget, with the timescales we have, there's always a lag phase between breakthrough and medical practice. Gene therapy may well be the future, but probably not for another 15 to 20 years. And it's worth remembering, if it isn't in somebody's development pipeline today, it simply can't get to the market before 2015 at the earliest. How are we going to get those new medicines? Well, undoubtedly, academia will continue to throw up opportunities. There will be spin-outs and start-up companies that create the seed corn for the future. And alongside industry's labs, we'll have to find a way through this process because none of these small startup companies has the expertise or the financial muscle to turn molecules into medicines. At best, they can get those molecules to their first human exposures. So in my view, the future of the industry will come down to a rather Darwinian survival of the fittest, of the current companies, through evolution to a more efficient and effective organisation. Those that do that and have the skill and maybe just a little bit of luck to find the new medicines through research and search could well be there for the future. But there's a big if. And the if, actually, in my view, is a question for society rather than for the industry. And the question is, is society willing to give an adequate reward for bringing a new medicine to the marketplace? And if not, who then will invest in this industry? With today's model, either the prices of new medicines will have to be substantially higher than today or the duration of the payback will have to get back to where it was some years ago when product life cycles were more like 20 years than the current 5 or 10. The current patent model forces industry to go as fast as possible with both the development and the marketing of its products. Society and its regulators would like to go as slowly and as carefully as possible. In particular, the introduction of a new medicine is always a battle between companies wanting to push as hard as possible to maximize sales and those who are concerned about the development of previously unrecognized and unwanted effects. One current proposal, then, is conditional approval of a medicine with the condition being that real-life exposure for a period of time through either trials or post-marketing surveillance after a very controlled entry to the marketplace is then followed by a full licence some years later. It makes a lot of sense from a public health perspective, but industry has two fundamental concerns. Firstly, the quid pro quo of a shorter, less expensive development time will not be honoured by the regulatory authorities. And there's already ample evidence to support that industry paranoia from the activities of the European Regulatory Agency. And secondly, the patent clock continues to tick throughout the probationary period, leaving even less time for the medicine to create a return. You won't be surprised to hear that no one is talking about a phased generic entry at the other end of the life cycle to balance this out. So what then could be the way forward? I wonder if it's now is the time to accept that patents alone are not the solution, and something like the European model of data exclusivity, but that exclusivity applied for a 15 or 20 year period globally post-launch, could be used to encourage industry to adopt a different model for both pricing and selling of its products. After all, it's the generation of all the data that costs all the money after the initial invention. There could be no arguing, as there is with patents, as to the start date. Industry could respond to the demands for longer and bigger pre-registration programs, safe in the knowledge that the clock only started at launch, and the generic companies and ourselves could stop spending all that money on lawyers. With an adequate payback time, more reasonable pricing strategies could be employed. It seems to me that such a model could be a win-win for both society in encouraging new medicines and giving industry and its backers the incentive it needs. We have to do something to solve the problem before society suddenly discovers that the supply of new medicines has dried up. I'll go to close my presentation by going back to the housing analogy at the beginning. Imagine for one second that the pharmaceutical industry is the medicine's house builder for society. And society needs to buy those medicines with a mortgage over 20 years and to repay that mortgage with interest over that time period. Today, the industry is being asked to build more and more expensive houses, but society wants to pay the same price, or less, and only over eight or ten years. It simply doesn't add up, and the social contract between industry and society needs to be reshaped from both sides for the future benefit of all. Now, I realise that I've painted a picture that sounds a little bit like Armageddon. But I wanted to get the message across that those of us working in the industry who've seen the phenomenal output of new medicines that can be achieved in the right environment have been very concerned for a period of time that there is no easy or simple future. I hope that some who've listened tonight and others who hopefully hear your podcast can take a little bit of note of what I've been saying. And I look forward to seeing a period of exclusivity in the future that allows industry to price at the right level and to get a return for its investment. Thank you for your attention.
2: Um, thank you very much, Dr. Patterson. Um, as introduced, I'm Sophia I just It might be worth just um, highlighting the fact that there are a couple of of the advisory boards that were mentioned that I sit on that are very pertinent to what I'm about to say. So I'll just describe what they are. One of them is um, something called the Tapestry Network, which brings together... A group of um, European payers with pharmaceutical companies, which actually looks at this whole issue around value for money and what constitutes value for money and, and how that's defined. Um, and the second is the project, the, the Pharma Futures project that I was introduced as being the director of, which has been an attempt over the past five or six years to actually bring together institutional investors in to the pharmaceutical industry with their, um, a whole bunch of industry executives to thrash out some of these issues. And the reason that I mention them both is because I'm going to speak to them both in, in my response. Um, so I, the one thing I would start with that I, I I thought your talk was incredibly interesting and there's an awful lot within it that I, I recognise. The one thing that I didn't hear as much about that, uh, as I would myself emphasize, was the complicating factor that, uh, of the nature of the product that the pharmaceutical industry produces. I think there is something very peculiar about the, the social contract that the pharma industry has, that other industries, even those that produce food or water, other products that are inimical for human life, don't generate the same sort of expectation and interest as the pharmaceutical industry does. And I, my personal view is that a lot of the problems that the industry faces is not getting this social contract right, that there's been a process over the past 30 years. Indeed, you've seen this massive change, as you've described it, in in the demands and the expectations around clinical trials. And at the same time, there's been a big change in the nature of the pharmaceutical market into a, a very blockbuster-focused business model with a a small number of medicines uh, commanding extremely high prices and and very high returns. And I think that that actually has something to do with what's happened over the past 30 years and and gets us to the situation that we are now. Um, I I, I do agree that R&D productivity is at the nub of the problem, but I think I don't accept the fact that uh, uh, possibly I don't... uh, Your definition of what an acceptable return to shareholders is. And that's at the nub of the problem. You know, what is that margin that is is appropriate and acceptable? And I think that the R and D productivity dearth has led uh, there's been no let-up let in what institutional investors have wanted in terms of return from the industry. And so if you don't have new medicines coming through the pipeline that can command that, then what you, you're encouraged to do as an industry is to maintain margins by pricing as high as the market will bear, advertise as aggressively as, uh, as you possibly can because you want to get as many medicines to as many people as you can, and to defend patents for as long as is viable. And I think that some of that has has led to a decline in trust. You've seen a process of upholding and keeping patents alive, which you know, some people call evergreening, other people call you know, that there are ways of, of defining it. But there has been very strong pressure to keep those margins high. And, and one of the impacts has been that you have retained the margins, you've retained the, the returns to shareholders. But in the process, the social contract and the feeling that Within society, that there's a, an appropriate balance between what industry is giving and what it's being, um, what it's receiving in return, is, is, is has got out of kilter, and I think nowhere is this more evident than in the emerging markets. And I think that um, if you actually look at how. What what the investors that I'm speaking to and and the companies that I speak to are saying are going to be the value drivers of the future. There are three things that people emphasise. One of them is R&D productivity. Of course, that is absolutely the underpinning one. The second one, the second two are, are more intangible. The first of them is value for money. Who defines what constitutes value for money and how is that then priced? And then the third is the emerging markets. There is this incredible sense what a lot of what you described, Dr. Patterson, was focused on mature markets, so market, OECD markets, what's happening in America, what's happening in Japan, what's happening in, in Europe, whereas most companies and indeed investors, are saying that the future value of this industry is going to come from emerging markets because mature markets are pretty much saturated. You have, um, you know, you've got everything that you described and more. You've got now this recessionary environment and so you are going to have payers seeking to get the best value that they possibly can for money. And yet if you're moving into those emerging markets, what you find is a completely different capacity to pay. And to describe that as people not wanting to pay, I think, is in danger of missing the point. I think people simply cannot pay. You know, being middle class, even in in, in the richer of those countries, very often is a very, very different thing to being middle class in our countries, where we are all cushioned from the price of medicines, because we have a third party payer who comes in and, and cushions us from those prices. In those markets, people tend to pay out of pocket. They tend to have much, much lower incomes than their European or North American counterparts. And therefore, benchmarking prices against what people in the rich world can pay, of course, doesn't work. People feel that they're being, that the medicines are being withheld. And so what you find is, is an environment in which patents are keeping prices high and even where patent uh, drugs are off patent very often the price remains high and so you get a situation where people feel that the social contract whereby they are being asked to afford and award a whole bunch of um, intellectual property protection of of various forms is not being um, paid for by making the medicine available either on the the basis of price or cost. So I mean I don't have very much time. I, I would just underpin the fact that I think that what has happened has been that the industry and its investors have have indeed lived through a golden period, Um, I think that for me what is changing, and for me it's a healthy change, is that you're now getting pushback with people saying, we'd still absolutely value incredibly the uh, the, um, product that this industry makes. We do have higher expectations about the product being made available to people on the basis of need, Um, that it becomes much more complex when you bring in the new markets in the developing world. Um, It's an appropriate expectation, and what it requires is for industry and the investment community to start being prepared to enter a much more negotiated space where there is the sort of conversation that's taking place, and AstraZeneca is actually part of this, this tapestry network, where people are saying, we concede, actually, that it's not simply cussedness on the part of, of governments or payers. It's the, it is, uh, there are very real choices to be made. Yes, pharmaceuticals may only constitute 10% of health budgets, but they are, that's a, a high percentage of health budgets. And if, it can be made, if if more medicines can be made available to more people or those medicines can be made available at that price for a a reduced number of people, and then you uh, 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 accept the the, the benefits to the the secondary care system, then that is a good outcome for society as a whole. So it seems to me just that that the balance between getting the right industrial incentives in place is is hugely important. But I think that a swing back to to ensuring that you get the societal benefits at the same time is to me a very desirable outcome. So thank you.